Hi, everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Want to say real quickly, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any custom merchandise, youth jerseys, camp t-shirts, whatever it may be, you can always find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store. We're going to jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Steven from Campus Inc. Back with another episode of the NIL Show. We have an awesome guest today. Back with us is Sean and Adam. And uh, I'll let Adam introduce our special guest. Adam, what's up? Yeah, we're super excited to be joined by Ben Schrader. Uh, ben Schrader is, he's got a, a, a wide ranging background, um, both as a trial attorney, but also in sports. So um, along with being a contributor to uh, Conduct Detrimental, which I think is one of the most brilliant names for a sports law uh, podcast and, and uh, a kind of media um uh, organization there. Um, he's spent some time as a broadcaster. Um, he has uh, a wide range experience into um, labor law, unions, um, representation and litigation on behalf of NFL players, professional players, uh, and a graduate from DePaul School of Law here in Chicago. And on top of all of that, he sits as the chair of the Chicago Sports Commission um, here in, in Chicago. So we're really excited to have you uh, join us, Ben. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Adam, guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat all things NIL today. It's going to be great. I, I feel like, you know, with all that you do and all the things that you touch, um, I, I, I couldn't get it all in the introduction. But um, we're really excited just to have you, you know, you're, you don't really touch the collegiate space directly, right? Like you're not associated to with, with a university. Um, and so we're really excited just to hear your perspective from a little bit of that, like, you know, hey, here, here's what I see as a trial attorney, as a sports broadcaster, as, you know, kind of this experience in litigation. This, here's how what I see this is how this is going uh, from a little bit of an arm's length. So we're really grateful for your experience here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. There's there's all sorts of uh, different people participating in this stuff now, too. So it's it's interesting to see from all, the, all these different angles. So, Ben, how did your world change um, or how has your world changed in what you do on a day to day basis with NIL um, and, and before it and after it? Maybe that would give some some listeners just a little color on, on on what you've done in the industry. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Stephen. Um, you know, I would say day to day things probably haven't been like night and day for me. You know, I, I as Adam kind of touched on, I do a wide variety of stuff. Um, what has been uh, exciting from my perspective, from a legal perspective, is that, um, you know, this NIL stuff was anticipated and sort of hoped for for a long time. There's been litigation around it for, you know, almost a decade. So those of us who are monitoring updates with regard to name, image and likeness litigation and college sports and and how athletes can can try and get compensated, you know, have been keeping an eye on this stuff for a long time. Um, Fast forward to the summer of 2021, and it seems, uh, you know, even to those of us watching and, and certainly to more casual observers, that everything just blew up overnight. And in a sense, it did, because uh, though the NCAA and others were monitoring it for a long time, there wasn't a lot that was actually done in terms of tangibly, how do we get players paid? How do we get student athletes compensated? Things like that. 
July 1st, 2021, several states had laws that were either going into effect or about to go into effect. Right around this time, a case came out, which I know you guys have talked about on previous episodes, the Alston versus NCAA case, which wasn't exactly an NIL case and it wasn't exactly on point to um, allowing all college athletes to get compensated. But in a lot of ways, both legally and practically um, and philosophically, it opened the door to all these uh, opportunities that uh, student athletes are now getting. And so right away, you had all sorts of people that had not previously participated in the industry or in uh, deals like this that were coming out of the woodwork. So from a day-to-day perspective, um, you know, things I think have stayed busy and gotten a lot busier for, for people that have been involved in this kind of stuff. From a, from a more sort of big picture thing, you know, it's exciting if in, in the legal field, anytime something comes up that's not really well settled, you know, that's that's relatively unusual. You know, you saw already how long these court these cases go to uh, take to get through the court system. It seems like things take forever and they do. We're kind of used to it. Um, and so when things are kind of more new and, and there's more opportunities and uh, it's it's more of a blank kind of canvas, that's really exciting because that kind of stuff doesn't come around as much uh, in our field, uh, as it does in other fields. So I think from, you know, uh, how have things changed? I think that's the biggest, you know, part of it, that, that excitement level that comes with, with, with getting to participate in something that's still being created. When, when it comes to fair market value, I feel like fair market value is a, is a major topic here. And I'm curious, how many situations have you come across before where there hasn't been an existing f- market before? prior to something like this happening. Um, and then also determining what the heck is fair market value for these collegiate athletes. Because I, I feel like there's a lot of people that that's getting tossed around and, and nobody really knows exactly what that value is. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really good question. The quick answer is it hasn't been answered yet. We really don't know. You know, the fair market value thing is a huge topic because, you know, NIL deals have to have some fair market value in them. They have to have a quid pro quo, i.e. services rendered. You know, you can't just give athletes money to come to school or to be in school. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's other sort of rules attached. The fair market value is subjective. One, um, there's really no... uh, there's really no consistency on on who's deciding that or how they're deciding that. I haven't seen a lot of things, if any, being rejected, uh, these deals for not being of a proper fair market value. It's not like we have, you know, like you said, an established, um, uh, you know, price for a lot of these services. You know, there's there's some corollaries, you know, when you're talking about the, the, the sort of ideal and probably most common deal, which is the social posting and the, and the Instagram posting and things like that. There are uh, matrixes and uh, for, for certain types of deals, but they're not exactly the same. And so you're kind of, again, with a lot of this other stuff, making it up as you go along. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it's, I think those things like a lot of other things, both in deal making and in the law and, you know, in, uh, in sort of similar industries will get established you know, there'll, there'll become kind of an accepted, you know, value for certain services. But right now, again, I I think they're just, people are just kind of making it up as they go. And if somebody wants to give an athlete $5,000 to sign something, is that the athlete's fault? I mean, right. And and it's, you know, we talk about it in terms of contract negotiations, you know, say a guy's a free agent in the NBA, you know, what's he worth? What one team will pay, pay him, you know? And so fair market value, if, 
you know, this whole thing, it's, I'm glad you raised the point too, because a lot of this stuff is, is, is about that. It's about the free market. It's about the fair market. Um, you know, what might be worth $5,000 to one school or one uh, company is going to differ, obviously, all over the place. That's not unique. That's, that's every industry, right? So, you know, why it's valuable to you and, and how much it's worth to you, there's going to be a lot of different reasons for that. And so, you know, what is it worth? Exactly. What's one person willing to pay for it? Why should, why should the NCAA, why should a state law interrupt that? They don't interrupt that kind of stuff in other industries. So it goes to, I think, the point of people just aren't used to this kind of stuff with college athletes. The NCAA is so set in its old, out-of-date ways that it just can't wrap its head around, I think, sometimes these kind of deals. Like, well, we've never done that before. How are we going to figure that out? It's like, well, how every other industry and company figures it out. You know, it's, <laughs> it's what the market will bear. And mm-hmm. I think that's it sort of highlights how much of this stuff is is kind of complicated by its newness and its you know, inconsistency in the enforcement. But a lot of it is also really simple. And something that everyone does all the time in regular business. And so, you know, I think it's one of those things where if we had this conversation a year from now, a lot of this stuff would be more established two years from now, five years from now. Um, but right now, you're right. It's, it is a simple thing, but it's, it's a really hot topic, you know, especially the who gets to decide part. And I think it's the who gets to decide that is the most interesting, right? Because, you know, a player is still not a college athlete is still not paid to play. And so that is the the one fundamental dis- difference. A lot of people have asked me, well, is this the same as the pros? Well, no. In the pros, you have an NBA contract. You're being paid by you know the organization you play for. So it actually creates more of like this, this black hole of, well, how then can they make money? Okay, well, can they get an autograph for 5,000, 10,000? Why not 100,000, right? I guess, do you foresee the NCAA putting in like an NIL panel? Do you foresee a... a collective bargaining, players unions, like how, if you were to draw this up and look in a, in a glass ball and, and say, this is how I think it's going to go down based on what I've seen, what would you say? I think eventually, I've, I've always been one of those people that I think eventually the schools will start paying the pay, players directly. I think this is, this, a lot of this stuff is a first step. Um, you know, and a lot of it's changing quickly, more quickly than, than, than I would have anticipated um, in some ways. And that's, you know, this, I look at I look at the NIL as it kind of stands now as the first step in like correcting a wrong that was perpetrated for so long. You know, for so long, college athletes were essentially singled out and not allowed to do uh, certain things, uh, be compensated, you know, uh, move freely in the market, um, commensurate with their value. You know, obviously, especially in the revenue generating sports for decades, um, these athletes were the primary driver of huge amounts of revenue that went to, in most cases, everybody but them. And so this, you know, kind of ability on the margins to, to sell the autograph, um, you know, a lot of the stuff you guys are doing with the jersey sales is really cool. And I've always looked at like the jersey as the platonic ideal of the NIL kind of thing. It's like you watch, you know, your team play, you go to the team store, you want to buy a certain Jersey. Oh, there's a, you know, university of Illinois Jersey with the number seven that happens to be the quarterback's Jersey. You know what you're buying, you know what you want to buy. The school knows what it's selling you, but that person's not allowed to have his name on the Jersey and he's not allowed to make any money off it. 
it's just the height of unfairness and it always was. And so I look at this as like step one and what it's, what it started to do, I think is change the perception a little bit that, Oh, if they start making money on this, you know, the whole world's not going to fall apart. The whole, you know, college, uh, athletic scheme is not going to fall apart. The ratings are still huge for March Madness. The money is still rolling in on the TV deals. I think once they figure that, okay, this is not going to destroy us, then it'll be like step by step. Now, it'll the collective bargaining and stuff, the, the um, uh, athletes as employees stuff, I think will take at least a few years to work itself out. Um, but I think ultimately, if we're looking down the road, I think that eventually, you know, you're going to see athletes getting paid directly by the schools and you're already starting to start to see kind of the, the framework for how that could work. Um, even in terms of, of colleges being able to participate in NILs. We see that kind of happening a little bit already in California, right? With some of the new laws that, that they're proposing about revenue share and things like that. What I'm curious about, and, and we've talked about this a number of times on this show already of there really are, are two worlds of conversation happening in the NIL space. There's the basketball and football conversation, and there's the everybody else conversation. Um, we know why that is. We know that they're the two programs that, that generate revenue. But from your experience, especially in employment law and, and understanding how these things work, how do you see that kind of playing out? Um, you know, the, the, you can't make precedents or standards for football and basketball that are the exact same for track and field, right? Like how do you see the universities navigating some of that? Yeah, that's why I think partly that the free market idea is an important one. And if we look at the NIL as a system, as, you know, putting athletes in positions they always should have been in, uh, in terms of compensation and in terms of, you know, being able to capitalize on their, you know, notoriety. Um, you know, I think that for football and basketball, particularly, those are always going to be the drivers because those are the major revenue sports. There's going to be some outliers. You know, there's, there's a, a number of very popular athletes that are either gymnasts or volleyball players or, you know, tennis players. You know, I think you'll see some of those individuals, um, be able to monetize this as well. But if you look at it solely from, uh, you know, the idea of, um, marketability and, and, and what's fair and being able to, you know, capitalize on, on what you can capitalize on most athletes were never going to be able to do that anyway. And yeah. so I don't think that should be against the law. I don't think it's particularly unfair, you know, treating everyone fairly doesn't mean treating everyone the same, mm. you know, the quarterback of Alabama is always going to be more marketable than, um, you know, a, a track and field athlete at a D2 school in right. the Midwest. That's just the way it is. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think the students understand that. I think the athletes understand that. So in terms of the NCAA regulating that kind of stuff differently, I think a lot of practically what happens will, will, will kind of come from the business aspects of it. Um, they'll find a way to make the legalities work out. I don't think it's ever going to be unlawful to have, you know, a regulatory system that, you know, 
it treats people fairly, even if they're not, you know, making the same kind of money. Um, oh, and that's, that's you know, so it'll funny. always be the, it'll always be the kind of people that, that we're making, you know, making money. And, and it's, you know, if we took, use the tennis example, for example, you know, the top, top tennis pros are making a lot of money and everyone knows who they are. And, you know, they're uh, very kind of ubiquitous, you know, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, like, you know, those people, most people that aren't huge tennis people don't know the hundredth ranked player. And those people aren't making nearly as much money. And that's because that's what the market bears. And I think that will be what you'll kind of see in the college stuff too. Um, you know, it'll never be equal because it probably never should be, but it'll be a lot better than the way it should be or the way that we used to be. And it'll be a lot more, I think, you know, fair and in, in terms of, you know, um, comparable to other, you know, markets and other industries. And the other thing about it is there will be opportunities in this, in that model where, yes, maybe that 100th ranked tennis player won't make as much, but they will have an opportunity. If they are really good on TikTok, for example, um, the cream will rise to the top. It's just like any average student on a college campus, say it's Steven who was on, on his, at, at Illinois slinging t-shirts, like those entrepreneurial people kind of just rise to the surface anyway and emerge. Um, I'm curious from a, from a, from a student athlete perspective, it's interesting talking to student athletes because there is the small percentage that do have agents, but for the majority of them, their agents are really just their parents or a close friend who they trust. And so they have contracts that are coming across to them and they're kind of showing them. And, um, but they really don't, they don't know much about legalese and different things like that. Do you have, do you have any advice for a student athlete who is looking at a contract, sort of things that they should be on, on the watch for? And perhaps they can't go to their school yet for help. <laughs> yeah. Yes. To answer, to bring up kind of the second thing first, I think this is where the schools are going to have to, and I think will step in and either directly assist, uh, you know, facilitate these deals or, you know, point them in the right direction. I think this, it's going to be incumbent upon the schools, you know, to help educate them. I would always give the advice to the student athlete, you know, have a, everyone knows at least one lawyer, right? And at least have that person take a quick look at the contract because, you know, uh, some of these companies are, you know, predatory in dealing with student athletes like they would be dealing with any other kind of student probably and uh, or, or any other kind of money, money making venture. You know, if it if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Have a lawyer look at it for even 10 minutes or 20 minutes just to go through and say, OK, this is just this sticks out this is really bad. You know, you might want to look at it because if it's a deal worth signing at all, it's worth having a, an attorney look at, and it'll probably end up costing you less in the long run to have somebody look at it for a half an hour. And if it's not, and you don't feel good about it, you know, even in, it's probably not worth pursuing in the first place. You know, that's where it's, I think going to be incumbent. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this because, because some of the states are changing their laws and Illinois did something really interesting this week. Uh, it'll be really important for the schools to step in and have resources for uh, the athletes um, when they're dealing with this stuff, because none of them have ever, you know, dealt with this issue before. Um, you know, having a contract for stuff, especially personal services contracts, where if you don't do this, you get in trouble and you're, you're breaching your contract. You know, that stuff sounds really serious. And usually it is. Most of these deals are not for millions of dollars, let alone, you know, six figures or even five figures. Most of these deals are much smaller. And so, you know, it's, it can be even scarier. It's like, oh, I'm not even getting that much out of this. Um, am I going to get in trouble for this kind of stuff? And so I think it'll be really important for 
just like any other type of education for the, for the, for the student athletes coming on them to seek out education, seek out resources, and frankly, for the colleges and universities to provide them. Ben, can we, uh, can we touch on Illinois and what they've done the last couple of days? I think some really, really, really cool stuff. If you want to, want to, you know, kind of tell, tell us kind of what Illinois has been going through and what happened in the last week, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So Illinois, uh, has had a, uh, NIL law, um, pretty much since this stuff all started, you know, coming around last summer. Uh, it was a fairly typical law in that it, um, you know, had certain requirements and had certain prohibitions, stuff that stuff the kids had to do, like report deals to the school. Um, they were allowed to work with agents um, uh, or attorneys, things like that. Uh, it's a pretty simple as far as, you know, statutes go, a few page statute. And it was, you know, uh, pretty straightforward. And, and again, there's not been really much litigation over it because less than a year is, is no time in the legal system. Um, but what they did this week and what I think a lot of other states will start to do is they started to see kind of how things are working out in real life. And they amended a couple real interesting provisions. One of those is, you know, uh, we talk about fair market value being the hot topic. The hottest topic right now is boosters and booster collectives and how they relate not only to you know, NIL deals, but now recruiting and what are they allowed to do? What are they not allowed to do? And how are they sort of getting around it? Um, the Illinois law uh, used to only, um, you know, no, no NCAA rules really allow boosters to get involved in recruiting. You know, that's, that's a no, no. I think that's probably the most basic no, no, uh, that we're all familiar with. And that's even for the pro NIL type people. I think, they're okay with limiting boosters ability to recruit, uh, student athletes to, to colleges and things like that. You know, there's gotta be a line drawn somewhere. And I think that's a line people are pretty comfortable with drawing. Um, and so the, the schools didn't used to be, I, I think to, to answer really the, the important question is the biggest change or the, one of the most important changes in the Illinois law is that schools are now able to facilitate, uh, deals where they had to basically stay out of it before hmm. the schools aren't allowed to pay the players directly yet. Uh, I think eventually they will be, but now they can at least facilitate and participate in deals in Illinois, not only for current students, but prospective students. And so I think you're going to see, um, uh, and I think that the consensus kind of among people that watch the legal aspect of this stuff is that the schools can now kind of replace some of the stuff the boosters are doing with facilitating NIL deals. Like the school can act as a middleman between a student um, and a company that wants to do a deal with a student, with a, um, with a student, for example, at their university. And so that's a, that's a big change. And I think that's one of those things that will start to open another door here and another, another door there. Cause the interaction will be just different. It won't just be the school staying out of it. Like they have been, uh, and then NCA is still kind of staying out of it, but now you'll see the schools more involved in these kind of deals. And I think that will just lead to more sort of partnership between the schools and the universe and the students, uh, in terms of doing these deals. Yeah. The other thing that was, that, that really jumped out to me in this new law, uh, as amended is that the state is encouraging, uh, schools essentially to offer education to their students on matters of, uh, financial literacy, brand management, uh, associated life skills. They're certainly not required to just yet, but encouraging them to. And I think that will be one of those things that will be, um, like a recruiting edge and a sale and, and something for the sales pitch, you know, mm-hmm. come here and not only will, can we help facilitate your deals? We'll teach you how to do, how to 
how to look for these opportunities. We'll teach you what to do with the money once you get it. We'll teach you how to manage that brand, um, you know, personally. There's all this stuff that that goes into it that people don't think about. It's easy to post on Instagram. Um, or I'm probably I'm probably aging myself. I'm I don't know if you know the, the kids are still using Instagram, <laughs> you know, t- TikTok, whatever you're posting on. It's easy to do that. It's really easy to do that. But then, okay, what have I really done? Right. You know, have I have I sufficiently protected my brand? Have I you know, run afoul of any, you know, state laws or NCAA rules, or was I allowed to use that logo? I just, you know, posted to my page, you know, they, the athletes mostly don't really know this and they don't really have any reason to, because they've never done it before. Yeah. And so this encouragement I think is big. And I think all the schools are going to end up having to do it. You know, the schools have devoted, I think, relatively little resources to the education and sort of, uh, assistance. Yeah. Mostly because I think for either they don't have the resources or they weren't allowed to, or, you know, for a variety of reasons, it's all new anyway. But I think you're going to see a lot of that now too. And I think that's why it was important. I think that's, you know, Illinois has, has made that change. I think governor Pritzker signed that amendment, you know, a couple of days ago. Yep. And then I think other States that have similar provisions are, are going to either want to or have to do certain similar and, things. And I think it, it makes great sense when you go to the business school or U of I law or DePaul or wherever that may be, the career counselors, the, you know, they're helping you get opportunities, putting you in front of people. Like they want you, there's a reason, you know, Deloitte sponsors the auditorium in our college, you know, college mm-hmm. of business, right? There's no reason why that can't have a play, place in NIL. And to be frank, like the school will have the best interest of the student, you know, there's, there's amazing people in the space as we met Cam Cox last week um, that that can look out for a student. I think that's the scariest part. How can you expect a 17 or 18, 19 year old to look at contracts and to know what to do and mm-hmm. what not to do and mm-hmm. what's a good deal and a bad deal? Have you seen any deals gone bad so far from your side in the legal system and looking at NIL gone wrong? Have you seen anything wildly, wildly out of control? Yeah. At this point, a lot of it is anecdotal, but I think some of the things you're seeing are, and, and the bad stuff won't necessarily get publicized. Um, one, cause depending on how it's bad, you know, if a, if a deal sort of runs afoul of either that state's law or the NCAA guidelines, neither party is really going to want to be in a position where they want to say anything about that because, you know, they don't want to violate the law. They don't want to bring, you know, shine a spotlight on something if it wasn't really above board in the first place. But I think anecdotally, you're seeing uh, some some sort of recurring problems. And, and one, you know, there's got to be um, one of the one of the requirements of these deals is there's got to be some services rendered. There's got to be something that the student actually does uh, to get the money, uh, you know, actually does to kind of monetize their name, image and likeness. It can't just be a payoff. And so you see a lot of, again, we go to the social media deals. Um, I was reading about something, you know, last week or two where, you know, there's, there's issues popping up with how much control the brands are wanting to take over uh, students' social media, you know, taking basically their whole identity and being allowed to do whatever they want with it. Obviously, that's a that's a huge overreach, um, depending on how it's worded in a contract or how it's you know pitched to them or sold to them. The student is not necessarily going to know that that's, you know, way farther than, you know, they should let anyone go. Mm. You know, who has the rights to their likeness? You know, who has the rights to their uh, Twitter account, for example? Um, what the company can do 
with uh, with their name or with their likeness. You know, they think I'm just going to make a post a week and that'll be it and that'll be fine. Uh, and then nothing really comes of it. But then you look a month or two down the line, it's like, oh, well, they're asking me to do all this different stuff. But then now they want to do it on their own and it can get really far down the road. And so, you know, there's I don't think there's a lot of glaring examples yet of that kind of stuff blowing up. But that's the kind of, you know, things you're hearing people, you know, in the legal industry talk about those yeah. kind of provisions. Um, you know, other stuff with regard to, you know, I think if we're talking about kind of deals, you know, going bad or, you know, obviously the booster collectives, you know, if there's going to actually be this effort to crack down on them and, and, and enforce the guidelines with regard to them, I think you might start seeing a little bit more ugliness, um, you know, because a lot of those deals are probably not above board. No. Um, and I think maybe some of the people doing those deals don't completely understand the laws in the states they're operating in. And, you know, there's provisions in those contracts likely that that are violative of either the law or the regulations or both. And so I think if there is, you know, they haven't, the NCAA, I don't think has investigated a single case since uh, the NIL system kind of got up and running last summer. Yeah. So there hasn't been a lot published. There hasn't been a lot of discovery on it. There hasn't been a lot of formal stuff. Everything you hear is from a college message board or from a rumor or, you know, these, these numbers that are being thrown around, you know, there's, there's not a lot of truthful basis in a lot of them because there's not a lot of formal paperwork on this stuff yet. And there's not a lot of, there hasn't been investigation. There hasn't been a, a one case where it's like, Oh, we're, we're starting to see a little look behind the curtain. That's an um, interesting thing. You know, you, you said, uh, you know, it's interesting watching the schools finally being able to put educational resources towards this, which is a silly sentence to even hear, right? Like it's a school and they're just now being able to put educational resources towards this. We talked about, you know, state legislation coming in place, uh, blue sky or federal legislation is, is, you know, uh, inevitable coming down here. It, it kind of feels like the NCAA is almost just along for the ride, right? Like when all of this yeah. came out, they kind of removed themselves from the conversation. I, I'm curious from your perspective, let's say you're general counsel for the NCAA, you know, and mm -hmm. they've kind of retroactively come in and said, Hey, we're going to go back and, and look at some of these particularly egregious behaviors. We're going to redefine collectives are a part of boosters in, in a, a landscape where it seems like, again, they're along for the ride since they've removed themselves from the conversation. How do you see them or do you even see them kind of reinserting themselves back into having some control over this kind of power play? Like it, it, it's so bizarre to me. Yeah, I, I think that they're at this point, it's a couple things. They're really afraid to lose that badly and that publicly again. Mm -hmm. And so you know, they're, they're kind of hesitant to, to do this, uh, enforcement activity, you know, lo losing nine, nothing in the Supreme court isn't <laughs> all that uncommon. It's relatively uncommon for such a high profile case. Mm. You know, there's a lot of cases that kind of cruise through the appellate system that go nine, nothing. Nobody ever hears about them. You almost, you very rarely hear about a, a nine, nothing case in such a high profile case. Mm. And so, I think the NCAA for so long was was used to just getting to do whatever they wanted for no good reason because that's the way they always did it. And they got away with it for a long time. And then they very publicly and very strongly lost. Um, and so now they're afraid to lose again. Another uh, uh, angle in it, to it is the resources too. You know, they're for a variety of reasons, you know, COVID-related cuts to staffing, 
you know, they're down to a very skeleton enforcement staff. Mm. And so I, last I read, there's like 15 or 20 enforcement personnel left to, you know, handle the entire country, hundreds of thousands of athletes, you know, hundreds and thousands of schools, you know, they just don't have the, 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 the manpower, um, to, to, to really fully in- investigate all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they kind of have to pick and choose if they want to. And I think the booster collectives is an easy one. You know, I think if they start looking into this stuff, they're going to find some of these, coll- I mean, there's like a hundred collectives. I think some of them are probably operating completely above board, mm-hmm. not doing anything wrong. You know, you see these Florida's kind of leading their way on a lot of this stuff. You see a couple in Florida that are very confident they're above board being advised by, you know, very, um, you know, skilled attorneys that have been, uh, you know, in this sort of arena for a long time and, uh, are not really afraid of, of any enforcement actions cause they're not doing anything wrong. I think there's a lot probably that are, that should be concerned. Um, you know, cause the NCAA hasn't really been enforcing any of its rules. The States haven't really been enforcing any of their laws up to this point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of these, uh, I'm sure it's human nature that some of these collectives are operating unfettered and, you know, have some things to worry about. I think at that point, it, you know, if the NCAA starts looking into them and gets, you know, a win or two, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that emboldens them to um, start to look into this stuff a little bit more seriously. But they're so afraid, I think, of spending resources and spending capital, you know, both in terms of PR and in terms of money, um, you know, going after something where there will be guaranteed to be litigation, mm-hmm. I think, is, is, you know, there's few guarantees. I think the first booster collective that gets kind of blown up or sanctioned by the NCAA or or NCAA starts to interfere in some of these deals, there will certainly be a lawsuit filed uh, citing back to the Alston case, mm-hmm. citing back to, you know, if there's other cases decided in the meantime, saying, look, you cannot NCAA interrupt the free market like this. Supreme Court's already told you that, you know, you're subject to the same laws everybody else is. None of this stuff's illegal, mm-hmm. you know, and it'll be a big fight. Yeah. And you know, fairly, I think not many people will be on the NCAA side and they're very aware of that. I think even at this point. And so, but there are ways that they can, you know, we talk about, you know, they've, they've, they've gotten beaten in the courts and they've, you know, the the whole system's been turned on its head from their perspective. They are still allowed to do certain things that don't run afoul of the antitrust laws and don't run afoul of employment laws. They're still allowed to regulate the competition. They're still allowed to regulate universities. Right. You know, they can do that. And I don't think there's any issues even with the pro NIL people of, you know, you know, regulating boosters and recruiting and so to speak. So, you know, if, if they want to try and go at it from that angle smartly and, you know, carve out that little piece of it, maybe you see a little bit more of that. But I think the first sort of, you know, it's a little delicate too. You know, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but uh, or I am. Um, but nobody wants to see the kids get in trouble either. Right. And so it's like, who are you going to penalize? Yep. You know, the, the, the talk is that the schools will be sanctioned, um, cause they're afraid of getting into litigation with the well-funded booster collectives. They don't want to punish the students, but then it's like, we're going to start sanctioning the schools. Well, the only people the NCAA has left on their side is the schools because, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're supposed to have their interests aligned too. And so, who are they going to go after first? Right. You know, are they really going to want to pick a fight with, um, you know, one of these SEC schools who are trying to drive revenue, threatening to break away from the NCA, threatening to start their own, you know, conference, entering in their own deals? Are they really going to want to pick that fight? Yeah. That's kind of hard to picture too. And so, you're, you know, you're I, in this big catch 22 of, of not, not yeah. really anywhere to go. 
I guess, Ben, what, what are, from seeing, you know, from having experience in the space, what don't we see coming? What are, I mean, we know that there's, you know, collectives and boosters and, you know, we've seen some drama happening in Alabama and Texas between, you know, some coaches and call outs and this and that. What are mm-hmm. you most concerned about? If, if you were to look at what is the threat of NIL? Like what is, what should, what should we be worried about, if anything, um, moving forward? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think maybe if you're, um, if you're a college football, uh, fan, for example, you're a big college basketball fan, you're, 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 you know, you like the way that you want to see, you want to see the student athletes compensated. You want to see them have more advantages and opportunities they should have always had, but you do kind of like the way things are from a competitive perspective. You know, you like the conferences, you like rooting for your school against its rivals and things like that. I think there's probably a concern among some corners that the NIL will, stuff will sort of drive some fracturing of that kind of stuff. You know, not that it will be the 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 reason or the cause, you know, uh, necessarily, but that a lot of these considerations in dealing with, you know, it's going to be kind of an arms race, uh, especially if if people are allowed to continue to operate in in an increasingly you know open fashion. You know, we haven't said, I think we've made it a record on an NIL show without saying the phrase, the wild west. Um, but that's <laughs> really what it is. You know, that's, you hear everyone, that's the one consistent thing about all this is that that's how it's described. And so, you know, you look at Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban fighting with each other last week and, you know, these big schools are just going to keep spending more and more money and they're going to spend more and more money because it's going to be competition and they're going to have to. Right. Especially if they get to start paying the players on their own, yep. you know, you're going to see a lot of money. Spent. Yeah. I was going to say, which I don't think is unfair because they've gotten to keep all that money up. To yeah. So they might as well filter it back to the, the people that actually made the money. The scout so teams are going to be a little different. Yeah. yeah there's going to be a scout <laughs> team for NIL yeah. of uh, yeah. what's what's Wisconsin doing. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think the concern, you know, I, fear, if you will, however you want to describe it, is that it will lead to some fracturing like that. You know, you might, you might see a different playoff system. You might see some of the bigger conferences break off. You might see, maybe that stuff was inevitable, inevitable anyway, but a lot of this sort of paradigm shift is going to drive, you know, change. The NCAA was never going to change unless the Supreme Court told them they had to. Right. And so, you know, I think that's, that'll probably be something that looks different. Um, and so if you are a fan of college sports, sort of how they are philosophically, um, you know, I think that is, is might be something that would change yeah. you know, either indirectly or directly as a result of this. Stuff. Well, well, there it is, right? That's, that's it. Change is coming regardless. Um, you know, hopefully it's positive change. We're trying to affect positive change in this space for sure. Um, this has been episode four of the NIL show with special guest, Brent Schrader, partner of Hart McLaughlin and Eldridge and chair of the Chicago Bar Association Sports Law Committee. What a wonderful conversation, Ben. We are so grateful for your insights uh, for your expertise, for your time. Um, I know I learned a lot this week. I hope our listeners did as well. Um, appreciate you. And uh, we'll talk to everybody really soon. Hey, everyone. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any teamware, custom merchandise, rec or youth league jerseys, Uh, fraternity and sorority wear or company merchandise we're always here for you you can find us at campus.inc and of course for all your nil needs nil.store